0: I don't know whether uh, dads would say yes, that's accurate, or um, maybe there's a little more to it than that. It's interesting. Uh, I know it's a, a week before Father's Day, but we're, we're ending our series uh, in uh, talking about how our work fits in with our worship. And so on Mother's Day, we looked at a woman's good work in Proverbs chapter 31. Today, we're going to be in Ephesians 5 looking at a man's good work. It's good to hear kids' perspectives on what it is that their dads do and compare that to maybe what they actually do. You know, the the thing is, uh, men typically spend a lot of time thinking about the job that they have outside of the home. But for kids, many times they know really very little of what happens. And there goes a sign. Um, and to them, um, and to kids, their dad's job is just dad. That, that's who they are to their kids. But it's very easy for us as men especially to first think when we hear the word work and what is it that a man's good work is, we even first think about what it is that we're called to do outside of the home. And there's not a lot of focus often on what we as men are called to do and to be Inside the home, in the family, what roles are we called to have and what work are we called to do in our family? So that's the focus of our time here this morning. Because it is so easy for us to focus on so many other things, Um, and especially the work that we have outside of the home, uh, we need reminders often uh, of the work that we are called to do within our homes, within our families as well. And so, as we've done throughout this series, we've had different testimonies from people in our church through video sharing, just kind of their story of how this has worked out in their life. And so uh, we have one and more of those, and then and then we're moving on from this series, and those, those video testimonies will be done. But if you could just listen in uh, for the next couple of minutes as we hear um, the story of one of our elders, Mark Guy, sharing his story about his calling uh, to his work and how that fits in with his calling to also be husband and dad. So let's listen in on this testimony.
1: My name is Mark Guy. And um, I'm a self employed farmer. I am married 30 years this September. I'm also father to five grown children and nearly grandfather to one. And also, you know, of course, active in, in the church. I know that I erred on the side of spending too much of my time, energy, and effort in my work sphere, and not enough in the in the family sphere. As I look back on it, part of it was me um, sort of justifying that. But the way I did that was by saying to myself, "Well, it's important for kids to see that their dad, you know, his responsibility is to provide for the family. And sometimes, by golly, that means that you're you're working when you could be doing something else." You know, I think for a lot of um, self-employed or entrepreneurial people. It's sort of a combination of, of fear of failure. I mean, uh, I was determined that I wasn't going to fail, and sort of an unhealthy or unreasonable aspiration to success. I should have, that's part of you know, failing to, um, to do a good job of, of allocating my limited resources of time, energy, and effort appropriately is that we didn't do I mean I did I failed to do things like a regular date night with my wife or, um, or frankly failed to do things like um, Bible study and reading and prayer together um, I should have done way more of that stuff I'm absolutely sure. those resources of time effort and energy are, are limited I mean they're only 24 hours a day um, and you do have to spend some of sleeping. So, how you allocate them among your various responsibilities with kids, work, you know, husband um, responsibilities to the to the greater to the larger church family, and stuff like that. Um, how you allocate those things should be a conscious decision, and it was a conscious decision for me. But in retrospect, now I recognize that I should have allocated them. One thing that we, jointly, Linda and I, um, committed to early on when we had kids, that we would have them in church every Sunday. That regardless of how, what we had done the week before or how exhausted we were or whatever, that that was just an absolute... um, an absolute priority that we we would not um, we wouldn't miss. Sort of the beauty of of being in relationship with with Jesus is that you know, in spite of our mistakes and screw ups, and they are plentiful, um, by God's grace, we can still emerge on the on the other side of all of that with you know a healthy marriage and um kids who still love us and stuff like that
0: amen it's so good to be a part of a church where there's so much that we can learn from each other sometimes learning from uh some regrets or mistakes my name's mark guy well hi that's mark guy again um So much, though, that we can learn, right? Uh, And and I'm so grateful that we can be a part of a body where hopefully you're engaging in relationship with each other so that stories like this don't have to come through a video, but they can come as you're in relationship with each other, as maybe some some older men are talking to younger men and older women talking to younger women and just sharing life together. Um, So much that we can learn from each other. So thank you to all of you who, through this series, shared your testimony in one way or the other. We uh, are going to focus this morning on a man's good work within the family, uh, within the home. Now, now you might feel like, well, that's kind of narrow. I mean, of all the different people here in the church, are you only talking to married men who have children today? And and I think married men who have children are going to hear almost everything coming right at them. But I also think if you're not a married man with children today, there are going to be a number of things, because God's Word is just like this, there's going to be a number of things that I think you'll find will apply specifically uh, to you as Well, um, and so let us, uh, if you have your Bible with you, open up to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to verse 22, and then we're going to go through chapter 6, verse 4. And our custom here as we read God's Word is to stand up. And so, if you're able to, would you stand as we read God's Word from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, it begins like this Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You can be seated. You notice in the bulletin, maybe maybe you didn't, but in the bulletin we do put a, a guide that will help you uh, to take some sermon notes. If that helps you remember things, there's also an application guide uh, that you can use to follow through with some things uh, throughout the week as well. So I encourage you to use that resource that's in your bulletin. You'll notice in that that the first point today is who husbands are. What does it mean to be the head? Um, That sounds, especially in our culture, that sounds somewhat wrong to some people, to call somebody the head and to call somebody else to submit. That, That makes some people a bit uncomfortable. Maybe you become a little uncomfortable when you hear that language. If you looked at verses 22 through 24, there's certainly commands there to wives. So those of you that are wives, go ahead, read those and hear those, study those. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that this morning, though, because the focus for this morning is a man's good work in his home. And so, really starting in verse 23, then, it says this, for the husband is the head of the wife. The husband is the head of the wife. Okay, so what is exactly that? look like? What does it look like for the husband to be the head of the wife? We don't usually use that kind of terminology when we talk about marriage in our culture, or maybe even in a lot of things. So what does it mean for the husband to be the head of the wife? Well, thankfully, Paul gives us an example. He says there's a model. Here's what it looks like for the husband to be the head of the wife. Look at what he says, verse 23. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior." So if we want to understand what it looks like for the husband to be the head of the wife, we need to first understand what it looks like for Christ to be the head of the church, right? So what does it look like for Christ to be the head of the church? Well, that word head carries with it the meaning of authority or leadership, okay? So that's the first thing I want us to know, that in order to be the head of the church, that means Jesus is in a place of headship or leadership or authority over the church. And this is good. For the church, that Jesus is our head. Jesus takes responsibility for the church. Ultimately, he does that when he is our Savior, right? That he takes on the responsibility of the sins of the church upon himself so that the church might be saved. That's how he saves his body, the church, by giving himself up and taking responsibility for our sins. So to be the head, Jesus is in a position of authority or leadership. He takes responsibility, and then he acts as the covenant head. Jesus' relationship with his church is a covenant relationship, and Jesus is the head of that covenant. Okay. Now, now it's not a contractual relationship. A contractual relationship looks like you trying to either protect yourself or get whatever you think that you deserve. And so a lot of times you'll hear the word contract used in professional sports. So, LeBron James, maybe you've heard of him. He can do some pretty neat things with an orange bouncy ball. And as a result, he believes that he deserves to get paid quite a bit of money. This year, that sum, just for this year alone, is just a little over $19 million. Okay? Um, You might be wondering, how can a guy live off of that? I mean, have you seen the price of of ground beef lately? I know. It's expensive. There's a fly on my forehead. Um, But. He is in a contractual relationship where, where he has had this agent uh, come to his, co- his agent comes to his team and says, this is what we think he is worth. And so he's in a contractual relationship where he must do this and they must pay him this, trying to get what he thinks he deserves. But in a covenant relationship, there is this mutualness. There is this, I am in this for the good of you. that doesn't really exist as much in a contract relationship. Jesus has authority over the church, takes responsibility for the church, and is in this relationship with the church for our good, but also for his good. Both. Jesus exercises loving authority over the church. So, what does it mean for the husband to be the head of the wife? If that's what it means for Jesus to be the head of the church, what does it mean for the husband to be the head of the wife? It means, first of all, that men are in a position of leadership or authority, a leadership within the home. So, men, husbands. You need to be asking yourself this. If you're a husband, are you leading in your home? Are you leading? Or are you passive? Are you just the guy who goes and does his thing, does his work, and then comes home and flips on the TV or opens up the computer and expects to be served? That's not leadership. Are you actively leading your family, husbands, or are you kind of just letting life happen? Are you praying for and praying with your wife? Are you aware of her needs? Are you seeking to meet them? what sort it of means to be the leader. Now, now some people can take, well, a lot of men become really passive in their leadership. They're really not leaders at all. Men on the other side can also become very abusive in their leadership. That's also wrong. Okay? Called to be leaders in the home. Also, just as Jesus takes responsibility in the church, men are called to be the one. In a, in a husband and wife relationship, men are to take responsibility. When God came to Adam and Eve after they sinned in the garden. Remember, it was Eve that ate the fruit first. But you remember what God said when he came to the garden. He was looking for Adam. Because he had given the command and the warning not to eat from this certain tree to Adam. Before Eve was even created. And it was Adam's responsibility to care for his wife by by sharing with her this command and warning from God. And leading her in that way. And taking responsibility. And he didn't. In fact, when God came, he started pointing fingers. God came to Adam and said, where were you, Adam? And he says, well, she made me do it, right? He's not a man who takes responsibility. So we see it right off the bat at the beginning of Scripture in Genesis chapter 3. Men who shirk responsibility rather than take responsibility. What this means practically Husbands, you are to lead and protect and warn and feed and guide your family. You are to take responsibility when something's going wrong in your family, when when your marriage is struggling, when you're having a hard time in parenting. You don't point your fingers at all sorts of other reasons. You take responsibility for that as the husband. That's what it looks like to be the head. And then, it also means that you recognize marriage as a covenant. You need to be committed to the relationship, not just for your own good, but for ultimately the good of your wife and the glory of Jesus. Being the head is not about, men, being the head is not about you getting your way when you disagree. That it's just like this card you can pull when you have a disagreement. Like, well, I'm the head, <laughs> right? So I get my way. That's the way it went, when when uh, the pastor did premarital counseling for Kirsten and I. That's the way he kind of described it. That well, being the head means if you can't agree on something, then Jeremy gets his way. Like, ah, uh, I'm really not sure that that's what was intended here in Ephesians chapter five. It seems more that the head is the one who steps up to be a leader, to take responsibility, and to commit yourself to your wife for her good. Not that you just use it as a card to get your way when you want to get your way. In fact, we learn more about that as we look at what the husband's role is. So that's who husbands are, the head, what, what husbands do. We're called to love our wives. We're called to love our wives. Look at, it looks like verses 25 to 33 are all about husbands. Because it starts out with the word husband. But verses 25 to 33 is really almost all about Jesus. But there are some things for husbands in there too. So here's a couple of the things that it says in that paragraph, two husbands, and we need to hear this. Verse 25, it says this, husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. What does it mean to love your wife? We hear the word love, and love is something, a lot of things that we talk about in scripture, we don't hear about them much in our culture. We hear about love a lot in our culture, but that doesn't mean that what we're hearing from our culture about love is right. In our culture, love has a lot to do with this like, uncontrollable feeling that comes over you. So we have love at first sight. We have people falling in love and then, and then deciding that they're not in love anymore. Because in our culture, love is primarily associated with a feeling. Now, love involves feeling. It certainly does. It must involve feeling, but it's so much bigger than that. So when Scripture says, Husband, love your wives, what does it mean when it says love? I've liked this for a long time, a guy named Vodi Bacham's definition of love biblically, and it is this. Love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. I think I've shared that with you before, but I just think it's so helpful. That love is an act of the will, and it's accompanied by emotion. It's not, it's not heartless in any way. There's a lot of emotion involved in love, but it's not the foundation. Emotion and feelings are not the foundation of love. They accompany this act of the will, this doing good for the sake of the other person. I'm making a choice to do something for your good. That is love. So husbands, you love your wife when you make a willing decision to do something for her good. That's what it means to love your wife. And that requires sacrifice. That's the rest of the verse. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's how Jesus, the groom, loves his bride, the church. He showed his love for her by giving himself up for her, by dying for her. Now, it's easy to be kind of one of those like macho men like, yeah, I'd take a bullet for my wife. Oh, great. I'm glad you would. You probably will never have that opportunity, thankfully. But you can kind of be that manly man who says, yeah, I'd take a bullet for my wife. But listen, are you willing to set aside your need for some rest time or for some me time and find a way to serve her instead? Maybe you'd take a bullet for her, but would you do that? Maybe you'd take a bullet for her, but would you sometimes say no to something at work so that you can have more time to spend with and serve your wife? Would you do that? Maybe maybe you'd take a bullet for her, but would you be willing to, to find ways to just bless her, encourage her, surprise her, take her out on a date? Maybe you'd say, yeah, I'd take a bullet for her. I can sacrifice for her, but are you willing to put your phone away and turn off the TV and give her your full attention every once in a while? Right? Well, we need these reminders because naturally, we're pretty selfish. And so we need reminders that that, that love looks like sacrifice, like giving up. Not just giving up big things, but giving up little things every day so that you can better love and do something on her behalf for her good on a regular basis. That's what love looks like. Love looks like sacrifice. And then verses 28, 29, and then 33 too. Say something that I always thought was a little bit strange. It says this, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. In verse 33, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself. So we're supposed to love our our wives. So one example is love them like Jesus loves the church. And the other example is love your wife like you love yourself. I I don't really get that. What is that? What does that mean to say? I'm supposed to love my wife like I love myself. But you know, it's not really all that strange of an idea. Remember when Jesus shares the two greatest commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. So, so what does it what does it mean um, to to love our neighbor as ourselves or love our wife as ourselves? I think the clue really is in verse 29, where it says this: For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. We do that to ourselves, don't we? We nourish, when we're hungry, we go find ourselves something to eat. We, We take care of ourselves the best that we can. If something doesn't feel good, then we try not to do it, and if it feels good, we try to do it. We nourish and cherish ourselves, and that's what we ought to do as husbands with our wives, nourish and cherish. Now, these are soft, tender, affectionate kinds of words. We live in the Midwest, And in the Midwest, men are supposed to be guys who are tough, guys who do manly man stuff. Like they like to shoot stuff and burn stuff and drive trucks and get get dirt under their fingernails. That's what it means to be a man. You're supposed to be tough, right? And those things, there are some people that do those things that are men. And there are some people who do those things that are still boys. Because it doesn't just mean that you're a man if you're tough. A real man is somebody who's tough and tender. Last week after the worship service, I drove away right away to go to Kirsten's grandpa's funeral. That was on Monday morning, and I had an opportunity to speak at that funeral. Uh, I had spent only 15 years of my life uh, with Claude, but Kirsten's grandpa Claude was an incredible man. And the two words that I used to describe him, I told everybody there, I said, he's the kind of guy I want to be like. He's the kind of guy I want my son Isaiah to be like, because he was a man who was tough. He was tough. He was a farmer. And I told people there, it's true, if you would have seen him, his hands, His large farming working hands could have wrapped themselves easily around my bicep, my little pastor bicep. He could just do that if he wanted to, right? He was tough. He was a World War II vet. All sorts of things that that, that made Kirsten's grandpa Claude tough, but he was also a tender man. And we got to see his tenderness as he cared for his, his ailing wife who had ALS in the last year of his life. He cared for her in his home as a tender and loving husband. Very rarely any times that I was ever with Grandpa Claude that I didn't see this man cry. As soon as he started talking about Jesus, he would start crying. Any time he opened the Bible to read it and tried to read it, he'd start crying. Any time he prayed or even any time you prayed, he'd start crying. When you showed up, he'd start crying. When you left, he'd cry. Houston's dad told me there were times where he was a little bit embarrassed by that when he was younger. It didn't seem right to have a man who was like that. But he was a man who was not only tough, but he was also tender. He spoke loving and affectionate words to and about his wife, men. Are you loving your wife tenderly? Maybe you're good at being tough, but are you good at being tender? You need to grow in that, men. Do you nourish and cherish your wife? We're called to do biblically. Verse 29 of chapter 5. Husbands are called to be the head, and as the head, called to love their wives. But for some of us who are husbands, God has also given us the call to be dads. We have this privilege and this responsibility to be called dad by somebody some for little kids some for kids that are grown so i want to look at actually chapter six verses one through C there's a lot of stuff there that's really good for kids the kids you're told to obey your parents kids you're told to honor your father and mother are you doing that that's hard to do it's really hard to do and you don't do it all the time that's why jesus came and he died on the cross for your sins right But i want to especially focus on verse four verse four is another word to men there's two commands in verse 4, really, for men, for, for dads in particular. Listen to these two commands. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That's an interesting command. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. What, is that, what does that mean? See, as, as dad, we have some level of authority, and there are ways that we can use that in a manipulative kind of way. I'm trying to think of uh, this week, what are ways that I might provoke my kids to anger that maybe some other dads could relate to? Let me just throw out a couple. Dad, is your discipline too severe sometimes? Are you gentle and loving and restorative in your discipline? Are you the dad who very, very quickly and too easily can just kind of raise your voice and fly off a handle? It can cause kids to provoke kids to anger. Are you unpredictable, Dad? Do your kids never know how you're going to react to things. That can provoke them to anger. Dad, if you abuse your kids in any way, just provoke them to anger or all sorts of other harmful things. If you're abusing your kids in any way, Dad, you need to get help. You're the kind of dad who criticizes your kids more than you encourage them. This can provoke kids to anger. you the kind of dad who pushes your kids too hard to succeed in things that really don't matter much anyway in the end you ever humiliate your kids in public? I know you probably don't try to, but maybe you don't realize that when you make a joke, when you bring up an embarrassing thing, those kinds of things, those provoke your kids to anger. Do you ever listen to your kids, really listen to them, or you just tell them to shut your mouth and listen to you because you're the dad? That can provoke kids to anger. A lot of times our, the anger that comes out in kids, sometimes it's an outburst right then and there. A lot of times it's this deep-seated anger and resentment that, that kind of eats away at your relationship throughout your life. Maybe you can maybe you've got some even tough memories with your own father. Don't provoke your children's anger. That's kind of the negative command. And then there's a positive command here in verse four. It says this fathers, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring your kids up. It's telling you how here's how you bring your kids up. A lot, a lot of resources in our world telling us how to bring our kids up. But here's what Scripture says. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Fathers, bring your kids up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What does the discipline of the Lord mean? That's not just about punishment. That's a part of discipline. But discipline really refers to the way that you organize and structure life. Okay? So how are you as a dad taking responsibility, leading your family? How are you organizing your family's life? Are you disciplined in some way as a family? Are you taking leadership in this? That means all sorts of different things. That means, dads, you ought to be teaching your kids how it is that they can responsibly consume media. Your kids are going to run into things that you don't think they're going to run into before you think they're going to run into them. So You probably need to have a conversation with your kid's dad yesterday about about the kinds of things that they're going to encounter if you have a computer in your house or if you have a television in your house. Or if they go to somebody's house who has one of those things. Or if they go to a school with other kids. They're going to hear about things. And you need to, as a dad, be proactive in having conversations with your kids that you're maybe wondering if they're ready for yet. If you're not having it with them, somebody else probably is. Part of what it means to bring your kids up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Are you teaching your kids, dads, what it means to work? Are you teaching your kids what it means to rest? Are you teaching your kids to love each other? Are you teaching your kids to honor their mom? all sorts of ways. It's not just punishment. Discipline is the way that you structure your whole family life. Dad, are you protecting your family's schedule? I think this in our culture is one of the ways that we're just kind of letting life happen because this is the way that everybody else is doing family life. And so a lot of times as dads, we just kind of go along for the ride, not recognizing the role that God has given us to, 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 to take leadership, and accountability and and responsibility for our family's schedule. Uh, I've read, I think, this quote before, but it's so helpful for me, and I think so applicable at this time. Because we might often say that Jesus is important, but if we're looking at the way that we organize our lives, and if our kids are looking at that, we can try and tell our kids, hey, Jesus is really important to us. But if they're looking at what we're spending all of our time doing together as a family, it might tell them a different story. So I've used this quote before says, people turned boys into men and girls into women Women for most of recorded history without dragging them around town with their tongues hanging out in an effort to keep, keep up with their overachieving, undereducated, theologically illiterate peers as they try to win trophies that will eventually gather dust in a basement somewhere. If I teach my son to keep his eye on the ball, but fail to teach him to keep his eyes on Christ, I have failed as a father. We must refuse to allow trivial temporal pursuit to interfere with the main thing. And that's what leads into the second command there. To dis- raise your kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Dad, are you teaching your kids? you teaching your kids. You're teaching your kids about the Bible. You're talking to them about Jesus, or are you just letting somebody else do it, right? I mean, that's why we have a wana. That's why we have a Sunday school teacher. That's why we have a youth group leader. That's why they have a mentor. They can teach them about Jesus. We kind of live in this culture where we have professionals do things for us, right? We'll just drop them off, and they'll take care of that, whether it's school or, uh, or or piano lessons or dance lessons or whatever kind of lessons you do, and we have that same kind of attitude when it comes to the spiritual lives of our kids. Well, we'll just drop them off, and I'm sure the Sunday school teacher will take care of that. I'm sure that somebody will take care of instructing my kids about Jesus, but biblically, that's not the pattern. The pattern biblically seems to be that that's the job of of the family, the dads even in particular, raising your kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We've got this thing going on in our culture, depending on who you talk to, the stats are somewhere between 60 and 85% of kids that are raised in the church totally leave the church during their time in college and don't come back. So this kind of idea that we have that like, well, as long as we have, you know, some good people around them, that, that will do. I hope they hear enough about Jesus from it. They need to hear it from the people who are going to have the most impact on them in their lives, and that's from parents. A lot of dads are willing to pass on a lot of things to their kids. They want to pass on to their kids their love for the outdoors. They want to pass on to their kids their love for the Cyclones or or the Hawkeyes or whatever. But how much effort, dads, are you putting into passing on to your kids your love for Jesus? Is that just something you let somebody else take care of? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Ephesians 6, 4 and Deuteronomy 6, 4. we start in both places. That's a lot to just chew on for one week. That's all you're going to spend uh, in the Word this week. Those will be two great places to go. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, it says this Hear, o Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That's where it starts, Dad. These words should be on your heart. And then you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gate. There has to be a time in which you, sometimes unintentionally, a lot of times unintentionally, stuff will just come up and you'll have as an opportunity, an opportunity to talk to your kids about Jesus to instruct them biblically, all sorts of opportunities as you go through parenting to do that. But do you also block aside a side of time? This has been so helpful for us. We didn't do, I didn't do this growing up with my family, but one of the practices that we have instituted in our family is we just have a regular time of what we call family work. You can call it devotion, call it whatever you want. But we get together as a family. Our goal, I mean, it's, it's, just not, it's not over the top. We want it to be something realistic. With a seven, a four, and a two-year-old, we, we shoot for 10 minutes a day, four times a week. OK, um, and, and that's not that's not a biblical thing. This is what our family does. But but you don't have to be seminary trained to do this. OK, this is here's what this time looks like. We've got this devotional book that's taking us through the Bible. we been doing it almost a year now. And we're like in Exodus 20. Um, uh, but but we uh, we're just we're reading the Bible together, um, asking some questions to our kids to teach them in that way. We're praying and we're singing. That's what we're doing. It's really, it's really pretty simple. Um, but it's a, it's an opportunity for me as a dad to have an intentional time of instructing my kids. I don't want them to just learn from their pastor. I don't trust their pastor, right? Um, so, so I got to teach them at home too. Dad, don't provoke your kids' to anger. Raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Love you. There's so much, man. You know what I really don't like to do very often? I don't like to do these "you ought to" sermons. But sometimes we need to hear a you ought to sermon, don't we? I really like to just talk a lot about Jesus and what he's already done. I don't like to just kind of weigh you down with, well, you should be doing this and you should be doing that. But sometimes in Scripture, we get some you should be doing this and you should be doing that. So we need to hear that. You know what I love about Scripture? Almost always mixed in with all this you should be doing this and you should be doing that. with a lot of talk about what Jesus has already done. We're not going to take a lot of time to go over this. You could spend a lot of time this, this week on your own in this. But I just want to point out, because I can't not point out, that verses 25 to 33 are mostly about Jesus and what he's done. So you might be feeling as a a husband or as a dad or maybe as a young man who's going to be a future husband and dad, you might feel the weight like, oh boy, I don't know if I'm doing, I'm not, you're not, you're not doing this. I'm not doing this well enough. I know that. But the hope that we have as a church is not in us doing things better, but it's in what Jesus has already done. And so if you looked at verses 22 to 33, we could just list those off. That's all I'm really going to take time to do here as we close is just list a few of these things off. As we close this series on worship, how it is that, that, that Jesus is eternally worthy of our worship. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, always worthy of our worship. We spend a lot of our time working. Why is it that Jesus is worthy of our worship in all things at all times? And one of the reasons is a number of the reasons are laid out right here. Who is Jesus and what does Jesus do? Verses 22 or 25 and following. We learn in verse 23 that Jesus is the head of the church. We've already talked about that, right? I'm not the head of this church. Jerry Hitch is the chairman of the elders. He is not the head of this church. Jesus is the head of the church universal and local churches as well. We submit ourselves to him and to his leadership. Jesus is the head of the church. What else does Jesus do? Verse 25, Jesus Christ loved the church, and what did he do? Because he loved us, he gave himself up for us. Verse 26 and 27 talks about Jesus, here's what it says, that he might sanctify her. Jesus purifies, makes us holy, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus is at work in his church, making us more and more like him, sanctifying us. Praise God for the work of Jesus amongst his people in his church. Jesus nourishes and cherishes the church. Verse 29 talks about that. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Praise God that we have a Jesus who, who nourishes and cherishes us. That soft, tender, affectionate kind of language. And then verse 31 says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a quote right out of Genesis. That's about marriage originally, but Jesus is applying it to his relationship with the church. It says in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church, right? That, that somehow, I don't totally get it yet, but somehow we as sinful people who are redeemed, who are adopted, who are brought into this new family, who are made a part of the body of Christ, that, that Jesus, our groom, is, is reconciling us to himself. That's what we talked about last week. He's reconciling us to himself, and we have union with him. The two have become one flesh. We are called the body of Christ. Do we deserve that? No, by no means. Hallelujah, what a Savior we have. My whole goal in this series has been that we as a church might be encouraged to see our work from a biblical perspective, so we might worship Jesus through it, and he is so worthy of it. He is the head of the church, and we rejoice. He is our foundation. Uh, I'm just going to close, actually, uh, by reading a couple of verses out of an old hymnal, um, and uh, a hymn that maybe some of you know or remember called The Church's One Foundation. Listen to these words about the relationship between Jesus and His church. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is His new creation by water and the Word. From heaven he came and sought her, he pursued, to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. This is good news. Yet she on earth has union with God the three in one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. O happy ones and holy, Lord give us grace that we like them, the meek and lowly on high may dwell with thee. For the good words. The church is one foundation. Our hope is that Christ has come to make us one with him when we were undeserving. And so may we, who have been made the bride of Christ, gladly spend our lives worshiping him on earth in all that we do as we long to worship him
1: face to face.